0: Good morning. Hopefully we have the microphone issue worked out from last week, and I won't be cutting in and out. Um, Our sound guys have been working terrifically to get it resolved, so we're very grateful for them. Uh, My name's Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. Uh, Today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 30, Um, a story that if you've been around church much, it's probably very familiar to you, the the rich young ruler. Uh, We're continuing our series that we started a few weeks back called Engaging a Broken World a series that dives into the many different encounters that Jesus had with, with brokenness in, in his world uh, in the Gospels. And last week David looked at Mark chapter 7 and Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law regarding the problems with rules and tradition, namely that they don't work to change your heart. Uh, they don't address your heart, and that's the place that deeply needs to be transformed from the inside out by the Spirit and by the Gospel. And this week in our passage, uh, a young man comes to Jesus and sincerely asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But as we'll see, Jesus doesn't directly answer the man's question. And some of us are left extremely puzzled when we read this passage. This guy's sincere. Why doesn't Jesus answer him? Well, as we'll see, Jesus is trying to go after the man's heart, and that's where we're headed this morning as well as David referred to earlier. As we come to Luke 18 this morning, where is your heart in relationship to Jesus? What do you really love? What do you really desire most in the world? Please read with me, beginning in Luke chapter 18, verse 18. I'll read all the way through 30. Hear the word of our Lord. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, for your love, for overseeing it, to bring it to us this morning. Uh, We pray that by your spirit you would soften our hearts, that you would meet with us and transform us by your goodness and grace. Help us to see you and to encounter you, to be honest with ourselves and each other, that we might leave this place knowing you better, knowing you maybe for the first time. Uh, We praise you for your goodness. It's in Christ's name we come to you. The 1979 Russian film, Stalker, it's a big hit. I know you guys have all seen it. Uh, It tells a story of three men on a journey, professor, writer, writer and their guide, Stalker. Uh, Stalker is leading these men to the zone, and specifically to the room within the zone. The room, he's told, is this miraculous phenomenon. It's the place where, upon entering it, they will be granted their heart's deepest desires. In the room, you get exactly what you want. And when they finally get there, when they reach the place where their most cherished desires can actually come true, they hesitate. It dawns on them... What if I don't know what I really want? The room reveals everything inside of them. What you get is not what you think you wish for, but what you most deeply wish for. They're confronted with the disturbing reality that maybe they don't want what they think they do. So what if the desires of their hearts, their deepest longings, are not the ones that they think they've chosen? One person writing about the movie comments, not many people can confront the truth about themselves. I think a lot of us in this room can really identify with that. If I were to ask you this morning what you really want, what you really long for, what you ultimately love, if you're a Christian, you know the right answer. We know what we ought to say, but would you feel confident, comfortable even, standing in front of the room and entering in? The insight that the room gives us is that our deepest desires are are really shown in our daily lives and habits, not necessarily in what we say or, or even think that we want. And that really brings us to our text for this morning. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus asking for what he thinks he really wants, eternal life. But Jesus, through a gracious conversation, reveals the man's heart, reveals the man's true love, his deepest desires, and they don't match up with Jesus and his kingdom at all. So this morning, what do you love? What do you really, really want? We're going to ask three questions of the text this morning to help us see into our hearts and also how to engage with the brokenness that we see around us, that we see Jesus engaging with. What do we learn about goodness is the first question we're going to ask. Second, what do we learn about ourselves? And third, what do we learn from Jesus? So first, what do we learn about goodness in Luke chapter 18? Well, first, who is this ruler? You know, from other texts, we know that he's young. We know, uh, we find out later in this text that he's pretty wealthy. Uh, The word for ruler used elsewhere in Luke probably indicates that he's a leader in the local synagogue. He's an upright, he's a decent young man. This is the kind of guy that you would want to be friends with, that you you would want to work with or work for, that you would want your sisters or your daughters to marry. This was an overall decent guy. And in verse 18, he comes to Jesus and he sincerely asks, Good teacher, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus, as often does, responds with a question of his own. He's trying to understand who this is that he's talking to, and he's trying to get this man to be a little introspective, to understand and see into his own heart. And Jesus replies, Why do you call me good? Then he goes on to explain his question. No one's good except God alone. The ruler is not trying to flatter Jesus. He respects him. He values what he has to say. That's why he's there. And so Jesus is implicitly asking, what does that mean if you call me good? If only God is good and you're calling me good, then what does that mean? But also, what does it mean to call someone good in general? If someone called you or I good, we'd gladly take it as a compliment. We'd tuck it away. We'd enjoy the affirmation. We'd go about our day. But Jesus is really pressing this young man. He's really pressing us to think about what is true goodness. And then Jesus goes further and he summarizes the second half of the Ten Commandments, the the part about loving your neighbor. He says, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, honor your parents. Jesus is trying to get this man to think about his goodness in comparison with God's goodness. He's attempting to help him figure out that he has failed to keep God's commandments. He might really be a decent young man he's not as good as God is. And the man replies in verse 21, all these I've kept from my youth. He's basically saying, I'm good too. I've done that. What else? I've got that down. What else is there? The young man is not aware of the distance between his goodness and God's goodness. He's not aware that he really doesn't get the law even though he's a ruler in the local synagogue. This young man thinks his goodness has been enough to get him God's approval. And if we're honest, you and I often think this is how Christianity works. This is how we often live. If we're good or we do our best not to break the major commandments thinking, you know, I'm not, I'm not that bad. You know, I'm not like those people over there, um, you know, then we're, we're good with God. He has to let us in. After all, we've been so sincere in our trying. It's our tendency to make Christianity about following a list of rules, of doing certain things, of not doing other things, so that we look good, like we have it all together, with little concern for what our hearts are truly after. With really little concern about where our heart is. And for those outside of the church, as David said last week, this is exactly what many people think that Jesus and Christianity is all about doing more good than bad, not breaking the laws, following some morality code. But what the law, what Jesus in this passage and throughout the rest of the Bible is really after is your heart. It's not about the externals. It's not about looking good on the outside. It's about the purity of your heart. So the law is not just about not murdering. It's about not hating people and thinking or or not thinking ill of them, or speaking ill of them. It's about loving them. Adultery isn't just about not having sex outside of marriage. It's about loving people. It's about not having lust in your eyes for someone or in your heart. Theft isn't about not just taking something that doesn't belong to you. It's about not coveting anything that's not yours. Whatever it is, someone's house, their car, their job, their salary, their grades, their spouse, whatever it is. And bearing false witness isn't just about not lying in court. It's about telling the truth all of the time in love. Honoring your parents isn't about, is, is mainly about treating them with respect, even if they don't deserve it, to love and to care for them, to serve and to support them. So what would you have said if Jesus asked you this question, why do you call me good? The reality is, for every one of us in this room, none of us can say that we've obeyed the full measure of the law, if we're honest. Goodness goes much, much deeper. It's being completely pure in action and in your heart, and only, only God is good in this sense. This man's limited understanding of who God is and what goodness is, it's keeping this man from a right relationship with Jesus. This man doesn't see his true state, that he's broken that he's in desperate need of forgiveness and a new heart. He misses the point about God entirely and about how good he is, and he replies, I'm good. This morning, if Jesus asked you this question, how would you reply? Would you reply like the rich young ruler? I've done all that since I was a kid. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thief. I'm not a liar, I don't sleep around, I'm faithful, I don't cheat on my taxes, I have the catechisms memorized, I don't hang out with that group of people, I study my Bible, I pray a lot. Do we think that we're mostly okay and that we don't really have a problem or would we respond like this, wow, I realize that the law goes much deeper than I ever imagined and not a day goes by where I keep any of it. Do we see our poverty of goodness this morning when compared with the beauty, with the purity of our God and his commands? Or do we think we're good too? So second, what do we learn about ourselves? Jesus this is this is awesome. If you look at Jesus here, he doesn't reply to this man. Have you read your Old Testament? Uh, there's no one who's good. In fact, your righteousness is like are like filthy rags before me. Have you not been listening to my teaching at all? You're a sinner. You need to repent. You're not good. You need forgiveness. You're a mess. Now all this is true. Not only of this man, but of every one of us in this room. But Jesus doesn't go after this man directly. He doesn't jump to calling this man out on his his sin, exposing him and shaming him. Jesus doesn't think the louder you shout about sin, the more direct you are, the more convicted the person is actually going to be of their sin. He doesn't use the Bible as a weapon against this young man. Jesus knows that no one has ever been shamed into following him. He knows that shame and criticism, which aims to harm and to tear down do not work as motivators to enter into a gospel relationship with Jesus. Jesus is more gentle in his approach. He's trying to get this young man to see and to understand his heart. So in verse 22, he replies, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the man heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Now hear me, Jesus is not saying that if you have money, the way that you get into heaven is, is that you give all of your money away to the poor. The way that you get God to love you is to give everything away. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus hasn't gotten the young man to see his brokenness and his need for grace yet, and so he's trying a different approach. He doesn't say explicitly, have you read the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. But that's exactly what Jesus is getting at when he's challenging the man and his wealth. You think you're good. Okay. Well, where is your heart? What do you truly love? What do you worship? What guides and directs your choices? Is it the Lord or is it money or something else? What do you live for? Who do you love? There's a great scene at the end of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Um I know, stay with me. Uh, Where Ferris and his girlfriend and his best friend Cameron have just spent the whole day ditching school, driving around Chicago in Cameron's uh, 1961 classic Ferrari Spider. They get home. They're trying to take the miles off the car so that Cameron's dad doesn't find out that they've taken it around Chicago all day, so they have it jacked up, and they're running it in reverse, trying to take the miles off, and it's not working. It's ridiculous. And Cameron... Has this moment of clarity where he's fed up with his relationship with his father, he's fed up with his dad's love affair with this car and the expense of at the expense of Cameron's relationship with him and the relationship with his family, and he starts stomping on the bumper and he's shouting, "Who do you love? Who do you love? You love a car!" And after he bom- he jumps on it a few times, the jack that's finally holding the car up collapses and the car drives in reverse outside of the two-story garage, garage window, and is completely destroyed and caught in the woods. So the question before us is, who do you love? What do you love? Jesus is trying to show this man, you do not only not love your neighbor well, you don't love God with your whole heart, with your whole strength, with your whole mind. And if we're honest, the same is true of you and me. What do you really want what are you, where are you storing up treasures, in, on, on earth or in heaven? Are my choices driven by love for God or trying to get more stuff, trying to be more comfortable, trying to be more safe or secure or happy or fulfilled? The reality is that is we all worship something. We all put something in the place of God, and the Bible calls that idolatry. There's a quote in the front of your bulletin by John that says, Our hearts are idol factories. Constantly worshiping something other than God. But how can you tell if something really is your idol? Well, pay attention to your insides. What gets you really upset? What gets you really angry or deeply saddened or afraid? What are you willing to fight for if it gets threatened? Does the thought of having something taken away from you make you want to hold on to it tighter? For some of us, it's our children. For some of us, it's it's our jobs or our grades or our status or our relationship with a certain person or our, our pleasure or our comfort or our convenience or even our reputation. Now remember, idols usually are not bad things in and of themselves. They're often good things that we've turned into ultimate things, things that we have to have. Things that we have to have in order to feel safe, in order to feel secure or worthy or loved or enough or significant, in order to feel whole. For many of us, our hearts are filled with idols that are keeping us from following God wholly, and we need Jesus to step in and open our eyes to them and have them ripped away from us and destroyed Cameron in Ferris Bueller's Day Off shows us that in order for him to have a right relationship with his father, this idol has to be destroyed. Now God, in this scenario, is where the, the illustration breaks down. God is not the one with the idol. We are. But if we're to truly love and serve and honor and follow after our God, our idols have to be destroyed. Someone once said, until your idols are destroyed, there is no room for Jesus in your heart. So we see this morning that we're all, every one of us, without Jesus, are lost, incapable of following the law, primarily because we've placed our importance and our value, our hope, our significance, and our ultimate identities on something other than God. And we're all in need of grace and his forgiveness. So what do we learn from Jesus in this passage? The first thing we learn is, From Jesus in this passage and dealing with the broken people around us, especially those who think that they're good, is that Jesus earned the right to ask challenging and penetrating questions. The moral beauty of Jesus' life and his reputation drive this man to come to him with respect and with a willingness to learn. And Jesus doesn't betray that reputation. He's gentle. He's humble and he's gracious and is entering into this man's life. He doesn't scold him. You should know better. Here's how awful you really are. You don't know the half of it. He doesn't shame him. He doesn't bully him with the truth. What we learn is that we can't just jump up and down on people and shout loudly at them that you're a sinner and you need to repent and you are broken to your very core, even though that's true. We can't do any of that without first having their love and their respect. We have to earn the right to offer affirming critiques, Not criticisms, but critiques motivated by restoring and building up without being critical, without taking the judgment seat, which is not ours to take. Only then will family members, coworkers, friends, neighbors, only when they know that they're loved and they're valued and they're safe with you, will they come to you with their questions. And then we have to be careful to ask them good questions as well. And we also see that Jesus tries to get people to see the beauty of, and the character of God. When we see see God for who he really is, we're more likely to see that we drastically fall short. All over the scriptures, every time someone comes face to face with God, they fall on their face and they say, I'm not worthy. Showing God's beauty, showing God's goodness, and the ugliness of sin is far more effective than launching accusations at people, than condemning them for being sinners. Conviction has to arise from within the person, only with the aid of the Holy Spirit. We, you and I, are not the ones that are responsible for convicting the world of their sin. That's the Holy Spirit's job, and we are not the Holy Spirit. In verse 27, Jesus says, What's impossible with men is possible with God. We need Him to help us see His beauty and our brokenness. We're never going to be able to do it on our own. We need Jesus and His Holy Spirit to help us to help us see how awesome, how wonderful, how beautiful and gracious our God is, to fall down and worship him and give ourselves away to him completely. So part of our calling in engaging a broken world filled with broken people is to demonstrate, to live out, to to show people the beauty and the goodness of following Jesus, reflecting his holiness, reflecting his love, his character, his grace, his patience, his words, and his demeanor towards people. But we also see there's no lost causes here. We don't get to write anyone off as beyond hope. The Holy Spirit can move and work in the lives of messy and broken people in the most heinous of circumstances. After all, look at what he's done in my life and in your life. That's what he's done for you. So we can't expect him to not to, to stop working the way that he's worked throughout history and entering into broken circumstances and bringing life from death. But we also learn from Jesus that he's concerned about the hearts of those around him. Yes, he truly desires that we love God, that we, that we love our neighbor, but he wants us to love and serve because we love him. Jesus isn't dismissive of this guy because of his bad theology or because of his self-righteous arrogance. Jesus doesn't dismiss him, but he enters in But his words about it being easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, they sting. They sting for you and I because our idols get in the way of us following Jesus. And that's ultimately what Jesus says to this man. Give your money to the poor and come and follow me. Get rid of the things that are keeping you from me and come after me. This morning, do you believe that only God can set you free from your idols? are you trying to manage them by yourself? If so, how's that working out for you? And maybe even worse, how is trying to manage other people's idols for them working out for you? Has that been pretty effective in making people love Jesus more? Jesus begins to set us free from our idols by helping us see into our own hearts. He cares for this man. He wants to get to know him. He's deeply interested in him. And he's willing to count the cost of what it will mean for this man to open his heart to him. And if we're to love and engage with the brokenness of this world around us, we have to be willing to do the same thing. What we see in this passage is that Jesus was ready to give his life for this young man, which he ultimately did on the cross, where he became his sin, where he took on all of his idols and his lack of goodness on himself, and he gave him all of his righteousness if he declared faith later. where where Jesus' perfection and Jesus' status as dearly loved child of the king is transferred to him, all of this while he's a broken, lost sinner. And that's exactly what Jesus does for you and for me. He gave himself fully to those who came to him, and he invites us to mirror that love and that character. We're called to draw near to people who are broken, not to be repelled by them, not to stay away from them, But to give ourselves away to them, to love them fully, to love those who don't know Jesus yet, whose lives are messy and sinful, because that's exactly what Jesus did for you and for me. So when we come into contact with Jesus in this passage, we see that we really, we don't have it all together at all. We fail in every part of keeping God's law. We're prone to put other things in place of God. Our hearts are idol factories. Our choices in our lives are not guided by what does God really want for me, but rather how can I get more of what I want? How can I get the thing that I'm really after? And what we see is that Jesus deals with us gently in this place. He tries to open our hearts up to ourselves so that we can, in turn, open it up up to Him and chase after Him and follow Him, the one who loves us, who looks at us with grace and with love, and He pays for our brokenness and all our idols on the cross, and He takes all of His goodness and He transfers it to us, and we get His status as dearly loved child now so that we can be free to worship Him, to love Him, to follow Him and Him alone so that he can truly be the love that's at the center of our lives, of our hearts, and of all of our actions. So this morning, is your goodness keeping you from enjoying the freedom and the forgiveness of the gospel? We're made to have God at the center of our lives and hearts. Everything else leaves us anxious and restless and hopeless. But Jesus, through his gospel, offers life and hope and rest in himself. So who do you or what do you truly love and desire this morning? Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the beauty of your life, of Jesus' life, of your faithfulness to us, of coming down to rescue us from our idols. We pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would open us up, that we would do business with you, that we would be merciful to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.